My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Cristiano Figueres, who has spoken at an RSA event, and in fact, even I think featured previously on an RSA podcast. So Cristiano, how are you? Well, I'm doing well. Thank you very much. I am in my home country, Costa Rica, where I haven't lived in over 40 years. And COVID has actually accelerated, just like it has accelerated everything else. And I'm sure we will talk about that. It has accelerated my return to my home country. So I'm actually quite delighted to be back in wild and wonderful Costa Rica. So, Christiane, I know who you are, but why don't you tell our listeners who you are? So my name is Cristiana Figueres. I have worked on climate change issues for over 30 years. And my last public role was I was on behalf of the United Nations. I was in charge of the international negotiations of climate change leading up to the very successful Paris Agreement, where it was my honor and pleasure to bring 195 countries to a very ambitious agreement on what they foresaw would be necessary in terms of the transformation of their economies over the next three decades in order to address climate change in a timely fashion. I was there at the UN leading those negotiations from 2010 to 2016. And since then, I no longer work for the UN, but I continue to work on climate change issues. And my boss now is the wonderful global atmosphere and our shared planet. Those are basically the same. Those are my bosses. And those are the ones for whom I continue to work. Great. And you're also, of course, the author of the book, The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis, which you wrote with Tom Rivett Karnak, and which I can strongly, strongly recommend. Yes, thank you. And also with Tom Karnak and with Paul Dickinson, I also co-host a podcast of our own. So thank you very much for having me here. Our podcast is Outrage and Optimism, because we think we still need a lot of outrage about what is not happening, but coupled with optimism about what is happening and what can happen. So just tell me briefly, Christiana, what's happening in relation to COVID in Costa Rica? Because I know in many parts of South America, it's on the rise. Well, yes, Costa Rica is an exception to most every rule in the world. And it is also an exception to what is happening with COVID in so many other countries. The government here was very, very aware of the science behind this disease early on. 
the Minister of Health happened to be, because the universe has some way of aligning stars, happens to be an expert in epidemics. That is his background. And he is Minister of Health, was already Minister of Health when this whole thing broke out. And so he has guided the country in a very, very wise and prudent way to the point where we are still holding, I believe it is the world record on lowest mortality rates. We have only lost 12 people to this disease. We are having a hard time now in the last two weeks managing new cases, not because of those of us who are here, but because of people who are coming across the border, mostly the northern border, because Costa Rica has such a good health system and they don't have the equivalent in Nicaragua. And so we're having a hard time with those people who very understandably and very justifiably would rather come here and be treated but they have brought some of the contagion with them. So we're dealing with that, but this is a very highly educated people that we have in Costa Rica and a very well-rooted and well-distributed health system. And so we are really reaping the fruits of decade-long investment into education and into health. And it's the two best investments that we can make. Christiana, we're well into our time and I haven't yet asked you the question which we're now asking every guest on this podcast. We did ask people before what they thought should and could change after COVID-19, but we're getting a bit more concrete now. And the question that I'm going to ask you then is, Christiana Figueres, what do you think is the big idea that we need for the world after COVID-19? The big idea that I think we need is to change our idea. <laughs> to change our idea that addressing climate change is a huge burden. It actually increasingly and exponentially now because of COVID has been made very evident that we humans need to live on a planet that is a healthy planet, that is a stable planet, that is a planet where everyone, every living thing has their own space and their own well-being. And that is what allows us as humans, being one species on this planet, to also be able to be here and to have our well-being. Being. So it's very much of a shift in mentality from looking at climate change as being a huge threat, as being a global issue and a multidecadal issue that we are completely helpless about and that we are therefore hopeless about, to changing our mentality to saying, wow, this is a whack over the head, definitely, but the whole of COVID was a whack on the head. We have changed our attitude about so many things. We have changed our behavior about so many things. And climate change is similar, only much larger. And so if we can understand that reducing carbon means improving quality of life. Somehow because reducing has a negative connotation when we reduce anything other than our weight, of course, then we always think that it's negative. But actually, reducing our emissions is a huge opportunity because A, it forces innovation. It means that we get much more efficient about every resource that we are using. It improves our 
human health because it brings down pollution in the air, especially in urban areas, and it reduces the global pollution that cause climate change. So there are so many positive, very, very positive aspects to reducing carbon, i.e. addressing climate change. And so I'm hoping that we're going to merge here with, you know, the big aha moment that confirms that we have understood that this is good for us. Yes, it's a responsibility. I'm not going to diminish that. But it is also a huge opportunity to not just accelerate, but exponentially accelerate technology, health, economic stability, and well-being. So these are, of course, enormously important issues for the whole world, but they have a particular kind of poignancy for us in the UK right now, because, of course, we are hosting in Glasgow next year COP26, and we will be hoping to emulate the progress that you made in Paris. But yet, even in the last few days, our own climate change committee reported and said, firstly, that our own government isn't doing enough in terms of concrete steps to get to our net zero target. And also, we are in the midst of a debate about how it is we recover our economy from the effect that COVID has had on it. And it is clear that in that debate, there are different views ranging from a view which says this is an opportunity to completely green the economy, root and branch, to a view that says, forget all that stuff. You know, there are millions unemployed. You've just got to get the economy moving and you can't afford to complicate it with anything, including climate change. Now, you know, you're somebody who's influenced national and global leaders incredibly effectively. I'm interested in how would you be articulating the argument to Boris Johnson right now, given that set of factors? Well, it is absolutely true that we need to recreate jobs. That no one can argue against. That is definitely the most urgent component here of the once we get through the health crisis of the economic crisis. However, the question that really needs to be addressed is what kinds of jobs are these going to be? Are these jobs that are going to be there maybe for three months or one year or two years and then fall off? because they will disappear with an economy that is always moving forward? Or are these actually jobs that are going to accelerate the transformation that is irreversible anyway, but that we now have an opportunity to accelerate? The way I think about this, Matthew, is let's think about when a very, very, very large tree falls in the forest. It is very sad to see that tree fall, particularly if it falls naturally. Okay, I'm not talking about going out there and felling a tree. But very old, large trees do fall naturally in the forest, and that is sad. But what happens is that as they fall, they make an extraordinary amount of space, and they bring in light into the forest that allows for new growth. When this big tree falls, it doesn't all of a sudden resurrect itself. It actually allows for new growth and a much broader diversity of plants. That is the kind of thinking that we have to have. Our economy is on the ground right now. It is on its knees. When a global economy is on its knees and when it has become paralyzed, what we need to see is what is the space that has opened up? What is the light that is coming in? 
for new growth, for new jobs, for new kinds of industries. This is not about building back. This is about building forward. This is about understanding that we are on an irreversible path of decarbonizing the economy no matter what, but that right now we have the untold opportunity to fast forward all of that transformation. Now, the EU is looking at this at a regional level. The EU is looking at this quite seriously. And their recovery plan that they are working on would contain 90 billion euros for home efficiency. Can you imagine if we now bring all the older homes, of which there are millions in the UK, into standardized up-to-date efficiency that would save everyone a lot of energy and uh, emissions. They're also looking at 20, and this is the EU, they're looking at investing 25 billion euros into renewable energy. The UK is actually pretty good on that already, right? I look at my grid GB every day to see how much coal there is in the grid in the UK, and it's, it is substantially coming down mostly because of offshore wind and certainly because of some gas. But the UK is doing pretty well on that, not so in energy efficiency or home efficiency, as mentioned before. The EU is also spending 20 billion euros into clean cars, mostly automated cars. London is moving in that direction, but not really the rest of the UK. A huge opportunity to do that. And then they're spending 60 billion into clean and electric trains because that definitely needs to be done on the continent. Now, it's very interesting that the EU is looking at this as their green recovery plan, particularly in terms of jobs, because what is this going to do? This is going to create at least 1 million jobs. 1 million jobs that are long lasting jobs. It's not jobs that are going to disappear because that particular sector, that particular company, or that particular industry is looking at its sunset days. So it is very much of an opportunity, as I said, you know, to see that there's a huge tree that has fallen, admit that it has happened. It has happened at huge human cost, admittedly, lives that we have lost, jobs that we have lost, millions of jobs that we have lost. And at the same time, it opens up much space for new growth, new light, new thinking. It looks as though in the kind of short to medium term, we're going to be in a kind of triangular world where the three biggest economies, European Union, China, America, and the decisions that are made there are critical. Now, as you've described, the European Union has set its course on a green recovery. And the numbers that you cite are big, arguably, given that it's the whole of the European Union, they're not big enough. But nevertheless, it's in the right direction. And the intent is clear and the rhetoric is clear. How confident are you when it comes to China and America? Because if we're going to solve this global problem, we're going to need a similar determination from them, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's start with China. I recently had, in fact, for our podcast, we recently had James Thornton on the podcast who directs Client Earth, who was telling us of the work that so many UK lawyers are doing to help China 
to green its Belt and Road Initiative. And I was quite taken back because I do know that there is at the top level of political leadership in China, there is a commitment to what President Xi Jinping calls the ecological civilization. And that is a term that he has coined and he has gone out publicly repeatedly to say that he wants China to lead the world into the ecological civilization. So he totally understands the direction that we're moving in. Of course, I also know that China is very dependent on coal. They are closing coal plants, but they're also building some. So the coal story in China, depending on what data you choose to look at, is actually quite a, let's say, a bicolor story because you can look at the ones that they're opening, which are fewer than the rate of opening that they had before, or you can look at the coal plants that they're closing. But what I thought was really remarkable is the depth with which they're analyzing their Belt and Road Initiative, which promises to be the largest infrastructure initiative in the world, because it goes way beyond China into all of their trading partners, and how they are putting through those investment decisions, putting them through the funnel of, is this a green investment or not? So I was actually quite taken by that information shared by the team of people who are doing the legal work on that. The United States, well, we all know that the direction of the United States on climate change, on renewable energy, on clean technologies, on innovation, on multilateralism, and the list goes on and on and on, is definitely going to depend on the elections in November. Obviously, if there is a change in administration, well, then we have, you know, the gales on our back. We will have winds that really will support everything that is already taking place in the United States and will move forward in collaboration, active collaboration with China, with the EU, with the UK, into the kinds of transformations that we know we have to do. Should that not be the case? Because in politics, all elections, you can only know the result of the election once every vote has been counted. So even though, you know, we have polls coming out, but we should not count on anything of that, should there not be a change in administration? I am very concerned about the United States. I'm concerned because, of course, on the one hand, 65% of the economy of the United States continues to decarbonize because they know it's good for their bottom line. And there you have many states, particularly those states that are on the eastern coast or on the western coast. Those are the largest and the highest economy states, and they are decarbonizing because they know that it's good for them and it's better for the well-being of their people. And you have many companies that, of course, are looking into the future moving forward. But evidently, a support from the central administration, from the federal government, is key to both amplifying and accelerating those efforts. It doesn't mean that the efforts will come to a screeching halt, but it does mean that they will not be able to advance at the scale and speed that they would like to and that is necessary. So honestly, I really do think that the election in the United States is absolutely the factor that will determine whether the United States joins the efforts on climate change. And I'm willing to say, 
it will also affect how quickly and how profoundly the transformation in the other geographies will occur because geopolitics is a factor. And if you have a player in the United States that is pointing the unparalleled innovation and technical capacity of the United States in that direction and doing collaboratively with other countries, then obviously everyone can move forward faster. In the absence of that, there will be a negative effect on the rest of the world as well as in the United States. So our attention, as I said earlier, is going to be increasingly turning to COP26 in Glasgow. The other day for an RSA event, I spoke to Nigel Topping, who's the high-level climate action champion appointed by the UK. I think he's got a opposite number from Peru. So we're engaging with the team that are leading up to COP26. What tips do you have to offer, Christiana? Because what you achieved in Paris in 2015 was not expected and it hasn't been replicated since. So what are the secrets to getting it right next time? What are the tips that you might give people who are beginning to try to negotiate the outcome of the next summit? Well, I must admit, Matthew, that when the discussion came up, and this was many months ago, about whether COP26 this year should be postponed, I was against it because I think deadlines are healthy. I don't know how many people in the lead up to the Paris Agreement in 2015 told me we're not going to make it, let's postpone one more year. And I was always, always against that because I believe in deadlines. I believe they accelerate action and they certainly focus our attention. However, now that that decision has been taken, I have actually changed my mind and I am totally willing to be public about that. I think that the fact that COP26 is going to be next year allows, given, you know, the paralysis of the economy that we have all over the world, it allows Nigel and his whole team, but in fact, everyone else who's working on this to do a radical lifting up from our bootstraps because that is what the current paralysis allows. In fact, that's what the current paralysis demands. It is a total transformation of energy use, energy generation, energy distribution, transportation to begin with, including also all of the land use issues that go with this, all of the restoration issues that go with this, it really allows time to make a decided difference from where we are today to where we're going to be at the end of next year. And the deja vu here that I would like to pull in is that, frankly, we would never have had the Paris Agreement if we hadn't very actively, from the Secretariat at that time, because we didn't have champions at that time. But from the secretariat, we actively reached out to the private sector, to the financial sector, to the insurance sector, to the spiritual and religious communities, to civil society, to indigenous groups, to young people, to older people. We reached out to everyone to ensure that they were all pulling their weight. So because the point was to create what I called a surround sound approach so that no matter where any of the 195 countries' governments would turn, that they would see a 
private sector and the civil society and an enterprise sector that was moving forward with decarbonization so that they would get the comfort level that was necessary for them to take the very difficult political decision that they took. We're at that point again. We now have a year and a half to mobilize all of these stakeholders to do what they need to do to do their decarbonization strategies, to develop the technologies, to engage in policy, to deploy those technologies, to deploy the capital, to do everything that needs to be done. And it's quite a long list. In order to get the real economy, which is very different from politics, the real economy to be already not just walking down the decarbonization path, but running down the decarbonization path. And if we're able to do that, then COP26 at the end of next year will have a much easier job because all of those 195 governments will again turn around some direction. And what they should have is, again, a surround sound system that from every single corner, from every nook of the economy, tells them we're decarbonizing. And then they will be able to do the job that they need to do, which is to increase the ambition that every country took under the Paris Agreement. What about the balance between mitigation and adaptation? Do you think it's a responsibility we should be taking more seriously, that we need to think about adaptation as well? Because whatever we do at COP26, however radical our actions are, there is now inevitable climate change. It's already occurring. So should adaptation be more part of this international conversation as well? Yes, definitely, definitely, because we're not going to solve climate change. That Solving climate change doesn't exist. The only thing that we're doing is we are trying to avoid the worst impacts, but we already have impacts and we will have more. So we definitely have to be paying more attention to adaptation, which does not mean to ignore mitigation because those two things are inversely related. The more emissions we have, the more we're going to have to adapt. And we can't afford to get to an emissions level where we are beyond our adaptation capacity. So sadly, we have to focus on both. Yeah, and it seems to me that when we do talk about adaptation, it raises people's consciousness of why is we need mitigation because already the adaptation that we have to engage in and invest in is pretty great and it's nothing as to what could happen. Final question, Christiana, which is something that I've wrestled with for many years in this debate, which is that many people, when they argue for the action we need to take on climate change and they express it in the very positive terms that you've expressed it, They want to link the need to decarbonise with the need to address inequality and with the need to kind of reimagine our quality of life and what really matters to us. I guess to be less materialistic, to focus more on things which give us satisfaction in life but don't consume resources or generate carbon. But there is another view which says, well, the problem is you're trying to smuggle a kind of progressive agenda here under the cover of climate change. Actually, just forget inequality, forget your values, your quality of life, you know, judging people by the fact that they prefer an overseas holiday to reading philosophy or whatever. Let's maximise support for climate change by just sticking to the climate change issue and what has to happen. Where do you stand on that debate? Well, I don't agree with that for two reasons. One is a moral reason that if we do what you have suggested at the second part of your statement, which is let us just go and pursue emission reductions wherever they are and let us 
not worry about the impacts on those who are most vulnerable, then we're doing a second injustice. That was basically the operational manual that we had for the Industrial Revolution, wasn't it? That during the Industrial Revolution, we went and we pursued manufacturing and productivity and GDP, no matter where that was, but just focused on the dollar sign. And we actually didn't pay too much attention to the fact that we were growing a huge have-not universe and a very small have universe. That is morally unjust. And I stand first on the moral argument. But also, even if you don't want to take the moral argument, even if that is so, one thing that we have learned from that very same use, consume, and throw away attitude and business model that we've had is that there are very clear limits to that. And at some point, you will hit the wall, if you're a company, you'll hit the wall of how many people can buy your product. You can only buy, you know, that many shoes or that many pants or that many cars or whatever. So it is not even from an economic and from a supply and demand point of view, it doesn't even make sense to reduce capacity to access the economy to a few people. It makes so much more sense to bring everyone into economic well-being. A, because it's morally the right thing to do, but B, because it represents a larger universe in which the economy can prosper. Christiana Figueres, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And thank you for the invitation to your podcast. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.